Thank you so much for gathering here this morning, uh, as has been made mention of on this sort of a uh, little overcast, a little rainy uh, and dreary morning, but it is good to gather as the church. And so thank you for bringing the church into this YMCA gymnasium. Uh, it's my great privilege to serve here as one of the pastors, so I've never got an opportunity to meet you. My name's Jamie. I'll be af- out there after the service as well. would love to connect and uh, help answer any questions that you might have about Crosspoint. So this morning, I'm really excited to dive back into this series called Witnesses as we journey through the great book of Acts. But before we do that, I just want to make mention of uh, one thing that's happening today. You've, if you've been around Crosspoint uh, over the last few weeks, you've heard about the Mishpot Project, all right? And this is an opportunity. I'll be real quick with this, but all the information is at cpwp.life. You swipe over on your phone there, you'll come to a card that looks just like this image that says the Mishpot Project. And there's, when you click on that, there's a commitment card that you can click as, as well. And so we're asking that today that those be, be turned in and it's an opportunity for us to uh, raise some funds to go out to bless Orlando Children's Church as well as Samaritan Village, which is a, uh, a great ministry that helps women who've been rescued out of human trafficking and where they can have a residence in this particular home to be to just experience redemption, rec- uh, uh, restoration from all the ways that they've been sinned uh, against. Um, and so we are looking to raise funds to help those ministries. And the beautiful, amazing thing in this is there's an outside donor that's doing a three-to-one match. And so we're looking to raise $12,500 as a church community. And that, every dollar of that would get matched three to one, so it'll result in $50,000 going out to these two organizations. And so today is the day for that commitment card. And let me encourage you in this. I know a number of you, um, I've gotten word that have gone online and have, have given. One of the things that would be really helpful to us as well, just to track it, is if you went and gave but didn't necessarily go to the Dot Life site and fill out the commitment card, if you would take a moment to do that, that way we just have, uh, make sure we have kind of accurate understanding of, of what people have given and that, that would be really helpful to us. And if, again, if you've got any questions, see me after the, the service. But the Mishpat Project, the Mishpat is this Hebrew word for justice and how do we bring this justice, this right ordering in the places of brokenness and of hurt and of need. And we can't fix it all and we're not here to, to solve everything, but we get to partner with Jesus. We get to join in uh, his work. And so this is a really practical, beautiful way to be the church together. And so thank you. I know a number of you have already participated and uh, today is uh, the Commitment Sunday for that. So as I said, we are in the book of Acts and the idea with this series is we get to witness all the ways that Jesus has been building his church. It's been going on for a couple thousand years now. He has been faithful to his promise that he would build his church and the way he does that is he works in and through us. And so we, on the one hand, we get to just sort of sit back. There's a passive aspect of it, just looking and witnessing all that God has been doing, all right? And things that we don't even get to see firsthand because he's doing things all around the world in all times and all, all places And so we just sit back and just observe that. And the book of Acts is telling that story of how the church got started. But it's not about the church devoid of Jesus. It's still about Jesus and how he's working through his church. And so we get to witness that. But then there's this active participation that we're invited into as well, that we get to bear witness. We get to declare the truths of who Jesus is about his life, death, his resurrection, how he's coming back one day to set everything right, that this mishpat, this ultimate justice, this right ordering that our hearts long for, like Jesus is the king and he's gonna come back and he's gonna do that and he's gonna wipe away every tear and we get to bear witness that. We get to invite other people into that, that story. So that's what the book of Acts is about in this series and so we're looking at these various selections through this book is kind of get a survey of it. And this morning we're gonna continue and we're gonna look at one of Paul's, the, Paul and Barnabas, this first missionary journey that they're sent on. As we do that, it got me thinking though about the need about how do you actually go about 
reaching people that are increasingly disinterested in the gospel, all right, that maybe they don't have any sort of biblical kind of just basic literacy, they don't have any basic understanding of who Jesus is, they didn't necessarily grow up maybe with some of the stories of the Bible, they may not have heard bits and pieces, like what does it look like to reach people in that, that way? Um, maybe a way to think about this is like, how do we actually reach those that, that are unreached? And as I reflected on this, one of the things that uh, popped into my mind this past week was, this goes back maybe three or four years ago, uh, there was a family that showed up here on a Sunday morning um, and got talking with them. They were, they were new to the area that they'd moved to, to Winter Park and they were looking to get plugged in and um, Thursday night happened to be a night that could work for them for also getting into a community group and my wife and I lead a group on a Thursday night so we invited them, them over and so they showed up for that first night at our, our home and we're opening up the Bible and obviously as somebody was new to the group, we wanted to get to know them a bit and ask them to share a bit of their, their story. And so they began to share with us why they had moved here. And they didn't just move like, you know, a couple of, from a couple hours away. They had been previously in the country, they had been in Hungary and they had moved to the United States. In particular, they had landed in Winter Park, Florida. And we're like, wow, that's fascinating. Like, did your job take you here? Like, why would you make such a big move? And they began to share a bit more of their story. And they began to share that they're missionaries. And they had heard of the great need in our land for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they had uprooted their family from Hungary and they had traveled across and landed in Winter Park, Florida to help bear witness to the reality of Jesus. And I just sat there a bit in our group, like in our living room, just being stunned a little bit because typically the narrative is we send people to go to other parts of the world, all right? We tend to think there are these nations and these places that need to be reached with the gospel. And that is true. But one of the things that had occurred to them, and it was helpful for me to even realize that this is our context, is that we are very much living in a post-Christian context, increasingly a post-Christian context. And that means that there are people that you and I interact with, and there are neighbors, and maybe family members, and coworkers, right? People that we're in relationship with, friends of ours, that don't have any sort of basic understanding of even what the Bible is teaching. Uh, about who Jesus actually is and what does it look like to be a faithful, fruitful witness in that sort of cultural context. And the text we're gonna be in this morning I think gives us great insight into how we can be a church in a world that is increasingly maybe even just disinterested in Christianity or has a lot of misconceptions about Christianity, all right? How do we actually enter in and bring the love and the hope of of Jesus. So how does this happen? And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 14 this morning, verses 8 to 23. And so I want to encourage you as we make our way through this verse by verse to follow along. So if you brought a Bible, turn there, app on your phone. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's some paperbacks on the table there, and you can turn to page 1022. You can also make use of taking out your phone and going to cpwp.life. The second card as you swipe over says message notes. Anything that is on the screen this morning will be listed there, including the text that we'll be in. And so I want to go ahead and read this, Acts 14, 8 to 23. And to set this up, we looked at last week out of Acts 11 that there's a church in Antioch. And it's out of that particular church that Paul and initially Barnabas get sent out as missionaries, like my friends from Hungary that had moved here to see the gospel of Jesus Christ go forward, all right, to reach out into various communities, this is the beginning of the church spreading out. And what we read about here in Acts 14 is one of these initial journeys that these men go on and how they go to these various towns. But what we're gonna see in the text this morning is the typical pattern of Paul as he arrives in a new place, the Apostle Paul, 
and he finds the local synagogue, he finds the Jewish people, and he begins, he starts there, all right? But what we're gonna see in this town here in Lystra is that there is no mention of a synagogue. Apparently there is no Jewish remnant there, that there is no synagogue, that there's none of those things that would have been a starting point for Paul. And so he has to engage in a different way. And I think it's a beautiful snapshot, a helpful snapshot of, okay, what does it look like for us in the current cultural context that we find ourselves in? And so Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse eight. Now, as I read this, would you go ahead and stand as we read God's word this morning? It says this, now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. And he listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and he began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments. They rushed out into the crowd crying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness, even with these words, though they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. Verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, and they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and he entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believe. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And so as we get into this, I want to highlight what I think are three things initially in this text, all right, that we can observe that showcase for us, okay, what does it look like to go into a place where there would have been no Old Testament understanding, there's sort of no foundation of which to build upon, that Paul doesn't have a synagogue to go in and start getting into, you know, uh, some dialogue and conversations, he doesn't have an opportunity to say, hey, your Old Testament teaching, the Messiah you're longing for has come in Jesus He's got to start in a different way. And so let's look at this. In verses 8 to 10, we read about this man who'd been crippled, all right? He has no ability to walk. And Paul begins to observe that the Lord is doing something in this man's life. As Paul was speaking, as he was talking about, as we'll learn, he's talking about who Jesus is. He's not shying away from that. He begins to notice that God is at work in this person, all right? That there's this this faith that's beginning to bubble up in this man. And so Paul looks at him and says, Rise up, stand up, and the man is able to. And he's just, you imagine the exaltation, the rejoicing. Now, in our study of the book of Acts, one of the things that is really interesting is you have to remember that Luke is writing this. And if we went back to the very opening verses of the book of Acts, all right, Luke tells us that he has a friend named Theophilus, that he wanted to write this account of the life of Jesus and then 
how the church began in and through Jesus through his spirit. And so you have the Gospel of Luke, and then you have this book of Acts. Now, Theophilus is this one who had been receiving this, and I have to imagine when he heard this story, as it's being retold by Luke, all right, and maybe you remember this from back in the fall when we went through the early chapters of the book of Acts, I believe there probably were some lights on his dashboard that were going off where he's like, I feel like I've heard this story before, though some of the details were different. And if you were to go back to Acts chapter three, you would find that there's a man who's been crippled from birth. And he's just outside of the temple, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, and he has to beg for help. He has to call out to people to get some sort of provision just so he can make it through his day, his week, so that he can actually survive. And Peter tells the man to rise up, and the man rises up, and then it tells us the language is like, like a leaping deer, he begins to go into the temple, this place where he would have been prohibited to go into. He had no means of getting there, and now he is walking, all right? And so if we jump here to Acts 14, it's really fascinating. We see early on in Jerusalem with a Jewish man outside of the Jewish temple. But what I read about here is now we're in a very pagan land, and there's a temple dedicated to Zeus, and there's a non-Jewish man who's outside of this particular temple, and yet the same healing takes place. What is it showcasing? God's intentions from the beginning have always been for the spreading of the gospel, to bring this healing. And so the first thing that we see is if we are going to see the church advance increasingly, even in cultures and contexts that, that don't have any sort of even baseline understanding of, of who Jesus is and, and some of the things we talk about as the church, it started with showcasing mercy. That there was an intentionality there, all right, where it says Paul looking intently at him. Now, I don't think for a moment that that means that you necessarily are going to have the ability to go out and bring that sort of immediate healing to people, all right? I believe that can happen, all right? But I don't know if that's necessarily going to be the norm. So does that mean, okay, that this doesn't apply to us? But I don't think that's the case. I think what is being spoken of here and what we're being reminded of is if we seek to engage in the world, the context where God has placed us. When we get to Acts 17, we'll be reminded that God has determined the very time and places in which we live, the neighborhood you live in, the job you work, the school you go to, none of that's by accident. And God has placed us in these spots to actually see people, to see their need. And maybe it isn't a physical ailment that somebody suffers from, but what if it's just the loneliness that is so pervasive in our culture? What if it's the psychological distress and the anxiety that people carry? What if it is people that are suffering from something physical and they're just tired and drained because it's so hard to actually endure this world or to help care for somebody that, that is suffering? Do we have eyes to actually see the need and are we stepping into those spaces? We live in a world that is increasingly like there's this, this, uh, this kind of attention deficit, so to speak. Like there's this, everything is vying for our attention, this attention economy, and everything is trying to get your attention and my attention. And the calling of the scriptures is to pay attention to the people that we see right in front of us, to get to know their stories, to get to know what ails them, to get to know the things that weigh heavy on their heart and their mind, and to begin to show mercy. What if we as the church started there? It's why we're passionate about it. It's why I'm so excited about the Mishpat Project. It's one of the ways, again, that we can go out into the community to show mercy. Now, ultimately, what we hope for is the same thing that Paul hoped for. For this, this man, it wasn't just to be physically healed, as amazing as that was, but he wants him to ultimately have this, this total restoration, this total healing, which includes him getting connected to his maker. And so that's where Paul's gonna take this, 
this story as we, we see, but are you seeing people? So the first thing I put before you is the church, we are called to show mercy. Now, there's an interesting turn in the story though, isn't there? Look with me at verses 11 to 18 again. So if there's this initial call to show mercy, I think the second thing we see though is we've got to make sure that we are at work actively redirecting what is misguided worship. I mean, did you, you remember the response? I mean, look with me again at verses 11 to 18, all right? This man gets healed, all right? And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices in Lyconia, and it was the, the language of that particular region, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And so Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And that tells the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, he brought oxen and garlands to the gates and he wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. So this just got really intense very quickly. Here's this healing that takes place, right? And suddenly the crowd is in an uproar and they're actually going as far as they want to worship. They're beginning to worship Paul and Barnabas. And because they're speaking a different language, I think at first, Paul and Barnabas, they don't know this language, I'm assuming. They are like, what in the world is this crowd doing? What are they chanting? Why are they running around in such a frenzy? And then they start to see some of the elements of worship and realize, oh, oh, like they, they're worshiping us. Now, one of the things that would be helpful to know, and then we'll talk more about this, is what is happening with this reference to Zeus and to Hermes? Like, is this just, just such a random thing? But one of the things we have to, to know, historically, there was something going on that would give a bit more of a cultural context to this. The people are still misguided, misdirected in their worship, and we're gonna see that, and Paul's gonna confront that, and he's gonna point them to the reality of Jesus, of the one true God. But in that time, in that place, there was a backstory. And this is, again, part of like seeing people. I don't think, that they didn't respond just, out, you know, just like out of the blue, like, hey, I think we should try and worship these guys. There was a legend, there was a story that had been written during that time and that place to tell an ancient tale, an ancient story that years and years and years ago that Zeus and Hermes themselves had taken on the form of, a, of men and they had come to their particular region. And this story would have been passed down, all right? And they believed that these gods had shown up as men and they would go from house to house, honestly seeking a place to live and a, a, a meal to have to be extended some hospitality. And as the story was told and kind of passed on through the generations, they, they went to a thousand homes, supposedly, and no one welcomed them in until they came to this humble little cottage outside of town. And it was there that there was this elderly couple with hardly any financial means that welcomed in Zeus and Hermes, these ones that just appeared to them as ordinary travelers. And they scrounged together the basics that they had and they prepared as big of a feast as they possibly could and they welcomed these men in. And the legend was that at that point, Zeus and Hermes revealed who they were and they transformed that tiny little shack of a cottage into a temple, into the temple that they have there now outside of town. And so this couple was, they, cheer, like they were revered in, the, in that, that culture. And the thousand homes that had rejected them were destroyed. So now, if that's the backstory that's running your mind, and you have these two guys that show up and suddenly start performing miracles, you can imagine for a moment, they're like, dude, I don't want my house destroyed. Like, let's welcome them in. Let's go like over the top, all right? Let's not just prepare a meal for them. Like, let's worship them. Let's sacrifice to them. So all of these things would have been happening culturally. And yet in this, as crazy as that is, all right, 
there is a response that we need to see here. And as frenzied as that scene must have been and some disconnect for us, we're like, I can't imagine doing that. I hope what we'll see in these verses is that this plays out in more ways than we might care to admit at times. And so the first thing, all right, in this redirecting the misguided worship, I've got three things for us. So we've got three overall and I've got three in here. So it's gonna be like inception in a moment, right? We're like in these various layers, all right? But the first thing that you see is that Paul and Barnabas, it says that they cry out and they tear their garments. Why? Because for them to be worshiped as gods, it's blasphemous. It grieves them. They have to make this demonstration to showcase, no, no, this is wrong. What you are worshiping, it's not. You shouldn't be worshiping us. Like, we've brought healing and restoration through the name of Jesus. You, we're his servants. Paul even says, Guys, we're men like you. We are broken. We are fallen. We are sinful. We're in need of God's grace. Do not revere us, but revere Jesus. But the, so the first thing, and I have to ask us for, for us to think through, if you're here this morning as a Christian, are you and I, are we grieved? Are we actually crying out? Do we, do we see the misdirected, the misguided worship, and does it break our hearts? And we might think for a moment again, that's crazy, that's a couple thousand years ago, that's so different than our context. I can't imagine a crowd of people gathering together, making a huge, big deal about something that we would be like, that's that's rather strange. Except there was a game this past Sunday. Do you remember the game? All right, there's this little thing in the American culture that's called the Super Bowl, all right? Now, you might think that I'm knocking sports as I talk about this, that is not it, all right? But the game is centered around this particular trophy, all right, the Lombardi trophy that somebody might win. And those of you that know me are like, yeah, that's something the Detroit Lions will never see. You're just a bitter fan. And that could be possibly true, okay? But what struck me, because we can tend to think, oh my goodness, I can't believe that this took place. Now, what was fascinating as we watched this, and this, you know, the game concluded. I actually was cheering for the Patriots, so I don't, I'm not a hater, all right? Um, some of you might hate me because of that response. But anyway, all right, so the game got, got over, and it was time for the presentation of this trophy, and I don't know if you stayed up to watch that. Some of you are probably like, ah, turned your you know, TV off in disgust because you don't like to see that team win anymore. But a few of you, I know, were very excited, all right? Now, as they panned out, they began to show the crowd. And I don't know how much you can see this, but there, kind of in the middle, is this gentleman. They got former like, NFL stars and players, and they would give them the trophy. And the crowd began to gather on either side of them. And step by step by step, a slow, methodical march holding this particular trophy and the people cheered and they gathered and grown men did things like this they would lean in just to touch it and then they would kiss it the germaphobe part of me is like are you kidding me but that's a whole other side of the story right and so all of this was taking place and it struck me in that moment not because I'm anti-sports or that I'm anti but is it possible That what was happening here was going beyond just the realm of excitement and of enthusiasm. It felt a bit like a worship gathering. That this processional, as it made its way up, and then the trophy was carried up these steps, I mean, almost like to an altar. And there it was, showcased in all its glory. It made me wonder, how different are we than a couple thousand years ago? That there are things that grip our hearts. There are things that we give devotion to. And we'll talk about this because maybe you're like, well, I'm not into football, so I'm off the hook. I, I, don't, you know, I don't worship uh, Paul and Barnabas, and I don't get really into the NFL, so I'm in the clear. That's not true. 
The reality is all of us have things that drive us, that compel us, and our hearts should be grieved as followers of Jesus for the idols, the idolatry that exists in our own hearts and that is out in the world. And not from a posture of judgment, but of like, oh my goodness, the Lord Jesus has so much more for us. In fact, Psalm 115 says this, describing this idolatry, says their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. And so you can picture something being fashioned as like the statue or this idol, and though it might look different in our context, we still create idols. Our heart is an idol factory is the reality of the situation. It says they have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but they do not walk and they do not make a sound in their throat. And then this word is given by God's grace as this very difficult word, but something that we have to hear. And it says, those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. There is something functionally that our heart is always looking to trust in to build an identity. The people in Lystra had misguided, misdirected worship. But the man who stands up here on the stage this morning has misguided, misdirected worship. You, as you sit there this morning, misguided, misdirected worship. There's something that grabs a hold of our attention. We think, I've got to have this. And now you think about that trophy being brought up, and it's going to be put in a case, and it's going to be celebrated. But at the end of the day, it is lifeless. And when we worship something other than the living God, we become like that thing which is lifeless. There is no life flowing through us. It may look good. It might look impressive for a time. You might be able to have people ooh and ah over and like, oh, that's so amazing. Look at what you've done and the things that you've accomplished. But ultimately, if that's what we're building our life on, it will crumble. It will disintegrate. It will tarnish and that's just the reality of the situation. So Paul, he cries, he's grieved, but then he also says, all right, you should turn from these vain things. As so he begins to confront, not only is he grieved by it, it's one thing to sit back, but it's also, he begins to enter in and he sees the response that they're having and he loves the people enough, he's grieved enough in heart to be able to say, I need to talk to you about this. The language here is language of idolatry. You should turn from these vain things. And I told you at the beginning that this wasn't a Jewish audience. There was no synagogue. And so he doesn't even start out with, hey, well, you know what the Old Testament, you know the law, and you've broken the law. What is Paul seeking to do? The language that we see, and he's talking about sin, but he's coming at it from a different angle. Paul's not shy about this. Paul has no problem telling people, all right, about their sin problem. So don't hear that in this. But his initial plan is he observes these people, it's like, well, they don't know the Old Testament. They don't have the Bible. They don't know the law. They wouldn't have had a familiarity with these things. He begins to say, you should turn from these vain things. He's saying, there are things that are empty. There are things that are meaningless. There are things that are gonna disintegrate and they're gonna go away. And you need to turn away from that. Because he says, if you end up worshiping something other than the living God, that idolatry, it will actually enslave you. It'll trap you. It's as if Paul is using this imagery and he's coming to a group of people and he wants them to consider this question. And it's not just a question for people back then. It's a question I've got to wrestle through. You've got to wrestle through. Because even as we talk about seeking to be a church that's faithful and having an impact in the culture, 
we can only go as far as we're continuing to wrestle through this ourselves. This is not us going out there as the great hope of the community, all right, that we've never, we don't wrestle with these things anymore. No, we're simultaneously, we're wrestling with these and also pointing people to the hope that we found. Do you feel enslaved? Do you feel stuck? What is it that has a grip on your heart so much so that it terrifies you about the thought of losing that? What has, what good thing in your life has become an ultimate thing? Do you feel enslaved? Do you feel trapped? Do you feel stuck? This is the angle which Paul goes at it. It's like there's these vain things and they're to be repented of and you need to turn, he's gonna talk in a moment to the living God, but do you feel enslaved? What is that thing? Perhaps it's a relationship. Perhaps it's how well your kids perform. I've, I've got to make sure that they do well in this or this. All right, maybe it's in how well you do in your career or the amount of money you accumulate or the experiences that you seek to have. Hey, you want them to do well at your job or thrive in relationship and in friendship and community, to do well in school, to want your kids to thrive and flourish. None of those are bad things, right? Like the, the, the message here today is not run out and just be like, hey, be terrible at work, be terrible in school, be terrible parent, be a terrible husband or wife or friend. Like that's not the message. But is it possible that any of those good things that the Lord, and you can just start thinking through, take an inventory of your life. What are the things that drive us? And so there's a few truths here. I remember running across this. I think these, listen, when all else fails, I'll just say it's from Tim Keller. I don't actually even remember if it is, but these are not original to me, but in my notes going back through some things, I remember I came across these, these truths that I wanna share. And here's the reality of everybody's situation, that the truth, number one, is this, and this is what needs to be confronted, is that you and I, we have to live for something. Like, there is some objective, there's some telos, there's some purpose or meaning, there's something that we're pursuing in life, and that is true fundamentally true of every person that's ever walked this earth. And the reality of what we believe as Christians is everybody's created to worship. And so what we see is this misguided, misdirected worship here in Acts 14. It at least is speaking to the reality that there's something deep within the human heart that longs to worship, that longs to make much of something. You have to live for something. But the second truth is this, is whatever it is that you live for, that is actually functionally what you're serving. So whatever that thing is, that objective, that main goal, that thing that you're pursuing, all right, that is the thing that you're serving, that is the thing that you're worshiping, that is the thing that is getting a hold of your affections and my affections. And the third truth then is that whatever you are living for, it will control your life and enslave you, whether it's a bad thing or a good thing. It's possible to be very, very religious and be very, very lost. Jesus continually confronts that. People that were seemingly doing the right religious things and yet they didn't really care for God. They didn't really want God. They wanted God's things. They wanted the blessing. Go and read Luke 15. You see the parable or the, the, yeah, the story of the, the prodigal son or the prodigal sons and you have the older brother that seemingly kept all the rules, right? But at the end you're wondering, is he gonna come into the party? He was controlled by his religious perfectionism thinking that he had earned something. Whatever it is, whatever you live for, career, relationship, people thinking well of you, that thing will control you, it will enslave you. And then the fourth truth, and it goes further, if you ever fail to get it, or if you ever lose, or if you, if you ever fail the thing you've built your life around, it will come after you and say, serve me or die. That 
thing, whatever you and I have elevated, will ultimately turn on us. It's the great tactic of the enemy to think, if I just have more of what I already have, like then I'll truly be happy. And eventually, as Psalm 115 reminds us, we become like the things that we worship. We become lifeless. The, these things will actually turn on us. Again, an image that came to mind for me this past week is just reflecting on, it's been a while since I brought the Lord of the Rings in. I do that every now and again, all right? And just thinking of the image, maybe you remember the character in there that goes by the name of Gollum, who is this wretched, miserable creature who at one point possessed the ring of power. And what you learn about his story early on is he was just a normal, this cute little hobbit. And he went fishing with his friends and he ate good food and he enjoyed life out in the countryside. And and then he got this ring and then he had to have this ring and then there was this over desire for it and then he lost it and he began to lurk in the shadows and it destroyed him not just outwardly but inside it's a picture of enslavement this is what idolatry will do and so for all of us what is it I mean, if we're seeking to engage with people, we also have to wrestle through this ourselves. Like, what is it that we're functionally trusting in? What is it that you are functionally looking to as your savior? Like, salvation means if I have this, you fill in the blank. But Jesus is the only master that if you ever, if you submit to him, will actually die for you. That career cannot die for your sins. That relationship cannot die for you. All right, people thinking well of you cannot die for you. That car you just bought or that trip you went on or that home you just remodeled, it cannot die for your sins. Only Jesus can do that. He's the only master that when you get him, you actually get freedom. So what is your functional savior? And so what Paul does as he continues, he's like, I need you to turn, he says, from, the, to a, from these vain things to a living God who made the earth, made the heavens and the earth, and it begins to unpack for them. Now, again, even early on, which is fascinating, and we don't know if we have just part of the sermon that he preaches. Does it get caught off? Because we know by the end here we're going to look at, like he's literally dragged out of town, all right, and they're trying to stone him to death. They actually think that they succeeded. So we don't know if it got interrupted, but it is fascinating to know where it starts because it's a different group of people who would have been, they were polytheistic. They would have been, sure, we'll take another God. We'll, we'll put up a little temple or an altar. We'll, we'll do that. And he's like, no, no, no. You need to understand that there's only one true God. And so he wants to take them all the way back to the beginning. So even in this, he talks about the good news and he wants them to know. And so it says here, um, he says, you know, men, why are you doing these things? And then he tells them to turn from these vain things uh, to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. But even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Do you see what Paul's doing? He's like, I need you to know that every good gift that you have comes from God. Don't worship me. Don't worship the good gifts. It's great that you had a great you know, crop and, and harvest. It's great that the rains come. It's great that you're making a living. All of those things. It's great that your family is flourishing. But do not worship those things. Worship the one who's the giver of all of those good gifts. Tony Merida in his commentary in the book of Acts says this uh, in regards to these, these verses. And then the call for us as evangelists, as heralds of the good news Here's where the opportunity, like there's a call here not only to confront, but to connect, to find the points of intersection with the culture and say, let me tell you what your story is about. 
He says, are you aware of the goodness of God in your daily life? Every time you eat a good meal, relax in a comfortable chair. Probably not the one you're in right now, but after a day's work, laugh with friends and family around a campfire, listen to the ocean, watch a sunrise, breathe in the fresh air. You are experiencing the kindness of God. But do you talk about the goodness of God to unbelievers over meals or in other venues as you talk about the beauty of creation? As believers, we should delight in God's goodness with gratitude and describe his goodness in evangelism. It's a great opportunity. All of these good things, instead of worshiping those things, use those as opportunities to connect the story of the gospel, of this God that we worship, to the story of people's lives. And Paul says he did not leave himself without witness, referring to God. God has been bearing witness even through the creation. It's what theologians will talk about, sort of this general revelation that we have, all right? It's what Paul, I'll read this in a moment, it's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter one as he's describing idolatry, how we look at the things of the world and we elevate those things. And those things were meant to point us to our maker. And yes, we need to talk about the specifics of the special revelation about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But oftentimes in a context where people don't have any sort of biblical foundation or knowledge to talk to them about like, hey, don't you want more in life? Do you, how's that thing working for you that you've centered your life around? Are you trapped? Are you stuck? Let me talk to you about the one who gave you that good gift where it was never meant to satisfy and how ultimately there's the God-man Jesus who entered in to pay for our sin, to free us, to liberate us so we wouldn't live for those things and get stuck and enslaved. He did not leave himself without witness. It means that there's this constant message that's going forth. Paul speaks of this in Romans 1. Look at these words. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. These are not popular words to speak, but they are true of what is going on in the human heart all through time. So whether you look at our time now and think it's amazing or it's the worst thing ever or somewhere in between, the reality is for all of time, people in their hearts have been suppressing the truth. The, the world, the creation, it speaks of God. It says this, so for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Everything is declaring the glory of God. It says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they came futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, dark, darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for image, images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. He's speaking of idolatry. He's saying the world, all the good gifts that the Lord has given you, everything that is in your possession, you're a steward of and it's meant to lead you to worship. Everything your neighbor possesses, your coworker, your friend, the one that doesn't know Jesus, the Lord is the one who has given them all of those good gifts. And it's our opportunity to point them and say, that thing, that thing is actually owning you. Like, you, don't, you think you own it, it is actually owning you, your life. You make all kinds of sacrifices to keep that thing, whatever it is, going. So how many people sacrifice like their family on the altar of like career success? How many people are just owned by my kid has to perform at such a high level. Now, we're not anti-achievement, but at the end of the day, like, isn't it possible that it can get a little out of whack, a little out of balance? And so we're turning these things, and the reality 
of the situation is God has been declaring the truth of who he is. And there's something in the human heart that wants to suppress that. Say, no, no, I possess wisdom. I'll do it. And so if we're going to be a faithful witness, the call is we would cry out that we would be grieved, that we would seek to enter into the places where there's this misguided worship. All right. And we show mercy. We're doing all those things. And if we're going to continue in this, this will be the, the closing. We could spend more time on this, but there is this call. There's this picture that's given to be a faithful church. It will be costly. We will bear the marks. I mean, look at it in verses 19. But Jews then came from Antioch and Iconium, people that are opposed to what Paul and Barnabas are doing. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. Talk about a fickle crowd. Think about it. You're the gods, come down. We worship you. We're gonna sacrifice to you. Oh, well, these other people don't agree? All right, let's get some rocks and let's stone these guys. That's what transpired in just a very short period of time. And so they're dragged out of the city, all right, and supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, and this, is, this just blows my mind, he, that's Paul, rose up and entered the city. The very people who had just thrown rocks at him left him for dead, thinking they had actually accomplished his mission. He's like, well, let's go back in there, all right? And then it tells us, which can be lost on us unless we're like really good at using our maps in the back, all right? It says, he entered the city, and the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Derby's about 60 miles from where they are. 60 miles is not just hopping in their their car, their SUV to go across the terrain there. Like this would have been a hard, difficult journey. Paul has literally been left for dead. His body is bruised. He is bearing the marks of persecution and of suffering. And he's like, I'm gonna go back in the city. And then the next day we're gonna go to Derby at 60 miles away because there's more people that need to know about Jesus. And then it tells us from there, all right, they, when they had preached the gospel of that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and then to Iconium and Antioch. Where were the people that stoned them from? Iconium and Antioch. Like, all right. You know that bit Jesus said about love your enemies? He's actually taking it seriously. So he enters back in, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So there's this call. We are invited. Here's how... Close to closing. I was going to say I'm closing with this. That's probably a lie, all right? But just a couple more minutes, all right? In this, there is this call, there's this adventure that we're invited into. There's this this quote I want to read you from Stanley Hauerwas, and he talks about this, like, so often it's so easy to miss it. Now, I'm not saying I want to sign up to be stoned, right? To sign up and have people beat me up and leave me for dead, all right? I'm not sure that that's appealing to you. But let's see in this, like, this, man, there's life here. That they're on this mission. There's disciples that are being made. There's churches that are being planted. Paul's raising up leaders, appointing them, saying, I gotta go, I got other places, but you guys will be, the spirit is with you. It's this beautiful picture. And we can reduce Christianity to something that's anything but an adventure. And so Howard says this, God has not promised us safety, but participation in an adventure called the kingdom. That seems to me to be great good news in a world that is literally dying of boredom. God has entrusted us His church was the best story in the world. And with great ingenuity, we have managed, with the aid of much theory, to make that story boring as hell. Convicting words. How have we turned this story that we've been invited into? Not that it's always going to be easy, but we get to be on mission with King Jesus. And Paul says in Galatians 6, 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. I wonder if he happened to be thinking back 
and looking at scars and bruises and the marks as he had been beaten numerous times, stoned, whipped, shipwrecked, all these things that the Apostle Paul dealt with. He's bearing the marks. And so how can we be that faithful witness? How can we continue when there is pushback, when there is difficulty? Even if it doesn't take on a physical sense like this, but it does for many people in many parts of the world, how do we actually move forward? And this is what we need to close with. Is it's only possible as we see the one who bore the cross, who had the marks, that is Jesus, the one whose back was whipped, who was nailed to a Roman cross, as a crown was placed on his head, eventually a spear thrust through, through his side, the one who later on showed up to Thomas after the resurrection is like, see, see the scars, see the marks that I bear. The one that Isaiah prophesied about in Isaiah 53, that, that he, by his wounds, we would be healed. This is the one that Peter references in 1 Peter chapter two. He says, for to this you've been called, talking about suffering, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. This is all references to Isaiah 53. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body, on the tree that is the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. The way that we can continue on in this mission amidst the difficulty, amidst the suffering, amidst all of those things is to know the one who bore the marks is ultimately Jesus. By his wounds, you have been healed. This is what would motivate the apostle Paul to say, I'm gonna get back up and I'm gonna go tell them about Jesus, and I'm gonna go to the people that have been my enemies, and I'm gonna go to the people that I think that this gospel message can't possibly break through, and I'm I'm gonna trust that God has just called me to be faithful, and he will do what he's going to do. Because Paul's like, I got saved. And the reality is if God can save you and me, he can save anybody, because we were all dead. It's, it's all a miracle that anybody's heart right now is beating for King Jesus. And so let me close this in prayer and give you a couple moments to respond and just ask that the Spirit might lead. Where is it that you need to repent? What maybe have you made an ultimate thing? And then remember that by Jesus' wounds, you've been healed, that this is the story you've been invited into. And then we get to, and I encourage you to be praying about this, who needs to hear that story? You have an opportunity, we have an opportunity as a church to sort of retell people's stories in light of the good news of the gospel, to point them, to make that point of connection, to say, here's what you're living for, but there's a life that is so much better. So let me pray for us, and then I'll invite us to continue in our service. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what we learn about your church advancing. It's only possible, Jesus, because of the cost that you were willing to pay, that your body was broken, that your blood was shed so we might actually find that freedom, that liberation, that we might be redirected, put in right relationship to worship the one who we were created to worship. And that is where we actually find life, where we find this abundant life. So Jesus, we thank you that you've made that possible. We thank you that you invite us to go out and to be your missionaries, to see the context in what we've put us, God, that we don't even have to go around the world to find people that need Jesus. God, you've put us right here. And there is great need. And so would you lead us, Holy Spirit, in repentance? Would you apply the truths of the gospel that we might remember, that we might rejoice in those? And would you use us as your missionaries to go and to, 
to tell the story of the gospel. And so God, we ask now that you would hear the prayers of your people, that you would get your glory and that we would experience just a great and abiding joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.